The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by the show's incredible Patreon supporters. Support the show and get solo episodes and access to custom Q&A audio from behind the scenes of my novel writing process and the creation of the show. Also, today I wanted to share an announcement, which is that the Secret Library podcast is going to go on hiatus for the remainder of 2019 after the July 4th episode. For the last three years, it has really been so special to interview so many incredible authors. But as we close on on 160 episodes, I keep coming back to the fact that all of these authors have given really similar advice to me and to the listeners, which is basically set everything else aside and focus on your writing. And having had a weekly show has really resulted in my time after time choosing to put the show over my writing. And I keep saying, oh, but we have to get the show out and then I'll deal with my book afterwards. And I've come to the conclusion that I can't in good conscience keep hosting a show that's encouraging everyone listening to write your book if I'm not doing everything I can to write my book. So the show's not going to end forever because I really do love it and don't want to let it go. But I don't think I can bring the next level of content until the draft of my book that I've been working on is finished. So here's the plan. I am going to, after the July 4th episode, put the show on hiatus for the rest of 2019 and then return in 2020 with a season-based format. And we're going to tackle a different focus of writing for each season. Probably, I'm thinking, eight to ten episode seasons, probably twice a year, maybe three times, depending on how many seasons and themes we come up with. More to come on what the focus will be for season two, but just know now that I'm really grateful that you're here and it's meant a lot that so many people listen to the show, but it doesn't feel right for me to keep being a novelist in progress. I have to be someone who's finished a book that I've been working on for years before I can really encourage you to write yours. So that's what's happening. And now on with the show. This is episode 154 of the Secret Library podcast. My guest this week is Greta Solomon, who's a British journalist turned writing coach and the author of two books on how to use writing to create a better life. In 2006, she discovered a talent for helping people overcome the blocks, fears, and shame that stop them from fully expressing themselves. Through talks, workshops, and online programs, she teaches real-world writing techniques and inspires others to live rich, full lives. It was such a treat to have Greta on because we were able to dive into two things that are so important and that people consider at different stages of their writing life. One is that her book, Heart, Sauce, and Soul, which is really wonderful, is chock full of journaling prompts and other inspiration that will help you stay connected to the fun of writing and feeling really alive in your language. We really dive in to one technique that's particularly good um, that I really loved, although all of the ones in the book honestly are excellent. But we'll go through one step by step, and I think it'll get you started really nicely um, before you check out the book. And the other thing is that the way she published the book is really innovative and involved both a crowdsourcing campaign and a traditional publishing deal. But I'll let you listen to the episode and find out how those two things fit together because it was a new model for me and one I think we'll be seeing a lot more of in the future. So I'm delighted to introduce Greta Solomon. Hi, Greta. Thank you so much for coming on. 
Hi, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's wonderful to be here. I was really looking forward to this conversation about uh, writing in your book, Heart, Sass and Soul, which is out now. And also just talking about, this is one of those situations where it ends up getting kind of meta just because you've written a book and you've written a book about writing. So we can talk <laughs> about the writing process as a separate topic, that's the topic of the book, as well as the process of creating your book itself. But I think maybe if we start at the beginning, what first inspired you to write this exact book? Because you've worked with writing for a while. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I've worked with writing for it's Coming up to 20 years now, I started as a journalist in 2000 and I started coaching and training writers from 20, 2006 and started off teaching uh, students, teaching them uh, techniques for their essays and exams and that morphed over time into teaching business writing. And I had been teaching business writing for big corporates for sort of four or five years. And I really needed a break from that. And I, it had been so intense because I created this business while I was pregnant and then while I was a new mom. And just kind of, you know, several years of just pitching and delivering, I just needed to really chill out. So I took a break and with the intention of just maybe doing a bit of blogging and not really doing very much. But that time out finally meant that I could write what I wanted to write. And what kind of flowed out of me was the essence of the book, Heart, Sass and Soul. And it kind of just sort of started with me wanting to write something about love. I was wanting to write something about love lessons. And I thought I could write a book of love lessons and from sort of going to Starbucks every day during this period and just cranking out that, this wonderful book all about writing and journaling and self-expression and my own process around that and how I used it to unblock myself and unblock other people. And it just kind of tumbled out and it became the book that that's in the shops now. That's amazing. I think this is really important because one of the things you talk about early on is the different ways that people are trained to write and that sometimes having training to write in a particular way, like when you've done workshops or had clients that if they're trained in formal writing, like journalism or a particular format, there were a lot of people that you you gave some testimonials that they shared who felt that they they weren't as excited about their writing anymore. It felt dry and kind of dead. And And what you were working on with them was a way to find out how to enjoy it again. I'm wondering if you can say a little more about that process, because you had to go through it yourself first. Yes, definitely. And yeah, I do find that when people do come to my workshops, that's the main problem they come with, that they don't have the joy, that they feel like they're stuck up in their heads. And for me, the process was that I too had been a journalist in a magazine and found that I felt very blocked and stifled, even though I was actually delivering articles constantly, constantly churning out articles. I was working for a weekly magazine um, before I did this whole unblocking process. And I found that, well, what I discovered was that I really needed to tap back into my inner creativity. And I did that via 
drama school. I studied at drama school after I went freelance as a journalist. I studied um, six days a week, evenings and weekends, and also did a lot of free writing, a lot of journalism, a lot of journaling rather, and also did lots of movement. Um, at drama school, we did a lot of sort of movement exercising exercises and freeing up our physical voice. But the one thing that really changed everything was going to study at Berklee College of Music. I studied for a lyric writing diploma and I learnt a technique there called object writing, which is where you, um, it's a technique that songwriters use to get the raw materials for their songs. And I found that doing object writing every day, just every day for a year, really completely unblocked me, completely opened me up. And it allowed me to write from the heart space, from the heart center, which brought back the joy of writing for me and meant that I could write really freely and easily. And I found that then when I went to then do articles or to do blog posts or any kind of other businessy type writing, I could write freely and the joy was there and I was able to kind of combine the two things. And that's a major thing that I've been, that I work on with my clients as well and in workshops. That's fascinating. I'm glad you mentioned object writing because that was something that I wanted to talk about on the show because the great thing about your book is that it's filled with techniques that people can actually try at home to work on their writing and either as a journaling process or as a way to reconnect to enjoying your writing. And I thought this was one that people would understand if we had a conversation about it. So I'm wondering if you can describe how the process works, because yeah. it sounded so mysterious to me when I first read about it. I thought, <laughs> all songwriters do this? I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, the same here. When I first, I, I could not uh, comprehend that this is what they actually did, but um, it's absolutely fascinating. So Basically, what object writing is, is literally taking an object. And I always say to start off with a piece of fruit because that's so tactile. You can actually smell it and eat it and, and really, you know, in, interact with it. So, for example, you take a peach and you would hold that object in your hand and focus on what you can see, hear, touch, taste and smell. You focus on the movement of the object and the feeling so that would be the move, the physical movement, if you were actually holding it and putting it in your mouth, but also the movement within inside you, perhaps, um, and the feeling, just you know, anything about how you feel about it. And the key thing with this is that you use a timer. So object writing is either 90 seconds, five minutes or 10 minutes. And you take a pen and a piece of paper, you write those headings at the top of the page. So see, hear, touch, taste, smell, feel and move to remind yourself of what to do. And you literally just start the clock and just write freely. And you don't stop to cross anything out. You don't stop to correct anything. You don't stop to read anything back. You just keep going. And you kind of go wherever your senses take you. So if you actually go away from the peach and start talking about the market where the peach came, what you see there, what you smell there, what you hear there, that's absolutely fine as long as your senses are guiding you. And you can find that within 10 minutes you've written, you know, you could write a couple of pages all free flow. And at the time of doing it, it often feels like you're writing rubbish or you don't like it. But the amazing thing is that when you go back and read it, you'll find that spontaneous images have just 
fallen out and beautiful phrases and um, really interesting words have come out. And that's so inspiring. So it's a double workout. You get the workout of writing freely for 10 minutes, which feels so joyful and so amazing. But you also create images that you can then use in a piece of writing. And it's those images that the songwriters then use in songs. And it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. I love that. I can think of so many applications. I mean, of course, there's the level of just reconnecting with the process and enjoying writing for no other reason. And sometimes it's really good to do that because I think if we're working on projects that we're really serious about, it can stop being fun because everything is, you know, in big letters, the book or Mm -hmm. the article and just being able to do something on the side that's really just playing around. It's really lovely. And I could also imagine this situation, like there are a lot of flea markets in Berlin. So it made me, as I was thinking about this, want to go to a flea market and find some strange objects that I could then write about that might find their way into a story or into a novel. Oh, that would be amazing because that's such a practical way of using it because through doing the object writing on, you know, an amazing object you find in the market, that could then lead to a story of a person who had that object. And you find that through object writing, a lot of the stuff you write that you can actually take and use as, as the as in, in real pieces of work. And it's such a joyous way of writing, such an easy way to get content and raw material. So yeah, definitely recommend you doing that. Okay, I'm going to try it and I'll, I'll report back. Yes, please do. Because I, one of the things that is fascinating to me when I read, say, historical fiction or novels set in really far off places or even memoir, and when people are writing about experience that feels far away, and yet when you read about it because of the language and because of the senses and the detail that's brought into it, you feel like you're there. It feels real in a way that is mysterious. You know, they're just words on a page and yet we read them and we feel like they're there. And I wonder, is everybody secretly doing object writing and I haven't (laughs) known about it all this time? That's such a good question. I'm, I teach it almost every workshop I've ever done. I teach it. I've only ever known it though, in the songwriting world. It's funny. Um, A friend of mine told me that it's um, an NLP exercise focusing on the senses and that's how you open up. But I think some people do this sensory writing very naturally. And I think those writers are naturally free flowing and find that their writing is vivid and alive. But we can all do that through the practice of this. And I really recommend doing it every day, doing it as a workout. And also, um, Object writing gets you in your body, but also getting in your physical body as well in terms of walking and in terms of moving and sweating and doing things that tap you into your artist brain and doing that alongside with the object writing. It's so powerful. And after a while, you naturally write in a very free-flowing, sensory way, and you don't need to do this practice all the time. That, that's how I see it. Absolutely. I'm interested in your experience with it because the way to do it is described really beautifully and you you reference that in the book, but I'm interested in this sort of behind the scenes. So you started doing this over a period of time when you were training and then what did you find happened in your writing process over time? Did you notice any changes as you moved away from journalism? Yes, I did. So I did this every day for a year because the course was about a year. 
And I found that it also unblocked my career in a sense because I was at the time doing freelance writing and through this practice of doing object writing, I realized that I actually wanted to uh, become a coach and a teacher and actually teach these kind of techniques because they've had such a big effect on me. So I think they allowed me actually to tap into something deeper within myself as well as helping me just be more prolific. I've never written more since doing the exercises, if you see what I mean. I, I used to obviously be a journalist before. It's kind of like pre-object writing and after are two completely different things for me because it allowed me to not get in my own way. Writing so much easier now. I'm so much freer that I can write a lot more. And I think without this object writing practice, there's no way I could have written, you know, two books and all these courses that I've written and all of the stuff that's come since. If I was, you know, at my desk struggling and writing just for my mind and being all stressed about it, it's allowed me to relax a lot more with writing. And, and I think that's been amazing. I wonder, there is something about finding the unexpected with this technique, because I think that we, we always want our writing to feel fresh, is the way that people put it. Like, I want my writing to be very fresh and new and to feel alive. And at the same time, if you just try to think your way into a new image or a new way of thinking about it, like it's a mental puzzle, it just doesn't happen. And so it almost feels like you've found a way to exercise this muscle that is loose writing or almost like you're stretching. I mean, yes, definitely. There's like, I actually created this, um, a tool It's called the communication pyramid so that you can kind of visualize exactly what you've just said. Cause at the top of the pyramid, you have the mind, which is kind of like the, the writing rules you've learned and the grammar structures and the, the hacks and all the regulations around writing. And then down you have like the body is the second layer. And those are practical techniques that allow you to write and structure your novel or structure your nonfiction work. But then below, the layer below that is the heart space. And that's what the object writing taps into. So, and then further down, down from that, you have your soul, which is like your core beliefs and what writing means to you and your purpose. And I believe that all of these layers together create your writing voice, the distinct expression of yourself. And anything that you can do to get out of the mind, um, is what is going to help you to succeed. And I find that most people are stuck up in the head and just trying to think their way out of things. And that's, you can never write anything fresh in that way or never be distinct or never be unique or exciting. It, and it becomes too forced. So it's also about doing mindset exercises that allow you to unblock the things that are keeping you in the mind. And one of the big things is that people have often been shamed for their grammar. You know, when um, you've been at school or you've been in a writing group or some kind of class and you write something and people don't respond to it from the heart level or from an expression level, but they just kind of criticize your grammar or your structure or, and that can really block people and keep them stuck up in the mind as well. So it's really about, figuring out what's keeping you yeah, in your head and, and getting out of there and forgetting about that and moving down into your body and your heart. I think this is really important. And I was glad that you mentioned it in the book is that there, you know, when you publish a book, 
as you know, having done it twice, you know, there are editors later to deal with the grammar part of it. And that the, the grammar is a skill that's learned and can be handled on a separate level. But if the material isn't alive, if the material isn't good, that's what really matters. And that I think when people are grasping on, you had a great example of that when people are criticizing the grammar, it's because they can't see the rest of it and they're probably very blocked themselves. Exactly. And often people who criticize grammar are just using that kind of as a weapon to sort of shut down someone's self-expression. We see it online all the time where people write stuff and 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 up the comments are just, oh, there's a spelling mistake here. Ha ha. And it's really not funny because, like you say, if these are just learned rules. Anybody can learn grammar if they take all the time in the world to, to learn it. But that's not what's important it's always the message and there's yeah like you say there's always editors who can fix that and that's the least of your worries because at the end of the day we've all got computers and you can just put your work through a spell checker and sort that so it really is kind of unlearning everything you've been taught in school in a way and finding a new way to write and create I think it's also I love that you're talking about as, as I'm picturing the pyramid in my head with the mind at the top, that it's very small. And then it gets wider as you get into the body and it gets even wider as you go down. Because I think we are taught in our education system that what the mind can do is sort of the most important thing, that that's the be all and end all. And that the other layers are sort of things you have to get through or deal with or, or sort of necessary. I used to, um, I had a friend who was in a PhD program and we used to joke that he was a brain in a jar and that the body (laughs) was just this jar that was carrying the brain around. And I think that we're sort of conditioned to think that way, that we're supposed to just be these big brains and ignore our bodies, thinking that the brain is the one that's going to do the heavy lifting for the writing. But when the brain does do the heavy lifting for the writing, it tends to be really dry. Exactly. And, you know, I, when I first worked in magazines, I used to wonder why is nobody moving? Why is everybody just sitting there focused on their desks? And even just, yeah, like even just not moving, it's it blocks you, it stifles you. And I really think that we, yeah, we've been kind of taught not to feel in our society 100%. And we need to start feeling what's going on. And I think the thing that people get kind of afraid of is that when you do get out of your head and into your body, stuff comes up, stuff you've been pushing down, pushing away comes up. And you have to deal with some kind of bad stuff as well that, you know, negative emotions or things that have happened to you that you may have been suppressing by just keeping yourself in your mind. And I think that that's a big piece of work that many people maybe don't have the time or the energy to tackle. And that's another reason why they stay in their head. But by staying in your head, you're robbing yourself of your success in a way that you could have had if you were willing to look at some of those more murky feelings. Yeah, I think that we aren't, well, we aren't trained that it's okay to do that. And also, I think that there hasn't been any education about trusting yourself, that if you go outside of the brain, it feels like, if I go out there, how will I stay in control of the situation? And how will I feel safe? And how will I feel all right? Whereas, you know, you have all of these resources available, like the body and your emotions and and other things that that we're sort of told to ignore because they're too much, they're too overwhelming, they're too big, and you won't be able to handle them. 
Yes, definitely. But I think it, it is about trusting yourself, like you say, and it's about getting to know yourself and know your strengths and know your weaknesses and know your, your shadow side so that then you are sort of going in the world from your heart space, but you're very protected because you know what who you are, you know what you want. And you can be like, you know, like, kind of like a cat, you know, a cat is <laughs> very relaxed until they pounce. You're kind of at ease with yourself, you know, but then you have a boundary there. You're not just rigid from the mind, just sort of like always in alert mode, always trying to control everything. And it, it is, um, yeah, it's a way of living that is not easy, but I think it's definitely better for your writing and definitely better for your, your health and happiness and, and sense of well-being. And I think that the the part of the I, I love this cat metaphor because I think that there are the creative mode that you can get into when you're writing is one where you need to just let the creative process come through. And I think people think that they can also keep an eye on grammar and structure and these kinds of more editing mentality items at the same time. Whereas if you try to hold on to the grammar while you're writing creatively, it's a little bit like driving with your foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. And I think we always, in, in our education society, we just kind of keep our foot on the brake. Like, oh, what if this gets too crazy? What if people don't like it? What if it gets really messy? I mean, I've definitely dealt with that feeling. Definitely. It's so common to do that. And I think also for me, like when I was writing... I wrote a lot of stuff that wasn't in the final edit of the book. A lot of personal things came out because I was just free flowing and letting everything out. But I also, because it was so kind of emotionally charged in a sense, I actually came down with um, tonsillitis during the writing process. I had 10 wow. days of tonsillitis and for no reason. I went to the doctor and the doctor said there's no virus there, there's no bacteria. She couldn't figure out any cause for this tonsillitis. She was a bit worried, in, you know, towards the end, like what's going on. And, I, and it was literally just things coming out. And I think in a sense, if you can allow, and obviously that I got better after a while, it, it's, it went down, the tonsils went down. Um, but if you can allow that to come out, you feel better than ever. And then you have this amazing rich material that you can then structure and then edit. And I think it's always important to remember that no one has to see any of it. You can show yourself even later when you can then come to edit. It's kind of like you have to sort of split yourself in two in a sense and imagine I'm just writing, I'm just writing, everything's coming out. And then you allow yourself to see actually what you're working with and pick out the gems and discard the rest. But by doing that, you've gone through an amazing personal development phase as well, which makes you stronger and you trust yourself. There's nothing to hide. You've got everything out. And then you can really trust yourself, trust yourself to edit your own work and to present the best piece of material you can then to an editor or a publisher, whoever's going to see it next. Yes, that's that's wonderful. So I really encourage everyone to dive into Heart, Sass and Soul because this is just one. We've just been discussing <laughs> one of the prompts that's inside of the book. There are so many in there. And I'm glad you brought up the publishing because the other thing that's very exciting about your book is it's one of the more unusual 
roots to publication that I have heard. So you are published, the book was published by Mango. But I'm interested in how, so you have a traditionally published book, but you took an unusual route to get there. So I'm wondering if you can take us through the pathway that that led to the book ending up on shelves. Yes, definitely. So I was actually approached last year, it's only been a year now, um, by a company called Publishizer. And they are this super innovative company that run crowdfunding campaigns for authors where they match the authors with publishers. So basically, they take authors who are writing books, but most of them haven't actually written the actual book yet, authors who just have proposals, and they work with you to put your proposal on their website, and then you have to get pre-orders. So you crowdfund from your network, from whoever you want to pre-order from, you know, you can have media articles, but the idea is to get, if you get 100 pre-orders, then you're pitched to hybrid publishers. If you get 250, you're pitched to independents. And if you get over 500, you're pitched to the big five traditional publishers. And it's an amazing way to both drum up actual sales before you've even written a book and to get pitched to the kind of publishers you may never have access to. And you have 30 days to do this campaign. It's all run online. People buy the book directly via publishizer. And then you send them updates about how your campaign's going. And it's a really generous and um, exciting way, I thought, to to get a publishing deal. It was a little bit hair-raising, <laughs> you know, because you only have 30 days to do this. But it was... That's how I got introduced to Mango, and it was an amazing experience, definitely. So how take us inside these 30 days, because mm-hmm. this is, I, I'm very interested because this is a wonderful idea, and I love the way this works. And I'm also wondering how you got through those 30 days and what steps you took to end up with the book deal that you got. Yes, yeah, so I spent time beforehand creating a video. I created a professional video about three minutes long, outlining the book and explaining what it's about and explaining a little bit about me. That was one of the main things you needed to run a successful campaign because everybody wants to see a video. Um, I had the proposal already and Publishizer edited it down for me and put that on the website. And then the days before, I spent time going through my mailing list, getting all my contacts together so that I could then do blasts to my email list and also blasts on social media. And then on the day when we hit go, I sent out my email, sent out my social media posts and got um, 14, 14 sales. But then I started to panic thinking, oh no, I've only got 14. (laughs) That was just day one. Um, And then... It was literally a case of emailing people and um, I did some interviews, did some podcast interviews, did got some media pieces and literally just kept going and I offered bonuses as well. So I offered if you bought 10 books, you got a coaching session with me. If you bought three books, you got a place in my online course. Um, and I had another bonus where you could hire me to speak. 
So it ended up with one of my writing friends and I actually delivering a writer's retreat in Norway together. And that was one of the bonuses. So she invested in the campaign and we ran this writing retreat together and sold tickets for that. So it was about finding also clever ways to engage people in the campaign and offering them things they really wanted in exchange for them supporting and buying books as well. That's amazing. How did you take care of yourself during this process? Because I can imagine that there's very little sleep going on. There's probably a lot of coffee (laughs) and there's a lot of just checking, 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 you know, number obsession can be happening during this process. Yeah, (laughs) it definitely was number obsession. I, my hands were so tired from sending so many emails during this time. Um, in the middle of this, we actually had a little holiday. We went to my husband and my daughter and I, we went to Norway for a little holiday. And that was actually quite nice to have a break from it. Um, I think it was my main focus during that month. It was really intense and it was all consuming. And because it was only 30 days and because I had Publishizer supporting me along the way, and there was a a group of us doing the campaigns at the same time, via Publishizer. So we had a little Facebook group so we could check in and say, how are you doing? And we also supported each other's campaigns as well. And that was really helpful that I wasn't doing it alone. Had loads and loads of support around me and people were cheering me on. It was really nice that, you know, social media friends, friends in real life, um, colleagues, everybody was cheering me on and wanting me to succeed. And I think, and Publishizer had complete belief in me that I would get my pre-orders and get a deal. And that really helped because I think it is the belief that pulls you through. And if you don't believe you'll do it, even when it looks like you're not going to do it, you still have to believe that you are going to do it. And I, I think that's the single most important factor that got me through having that faith that it would work out. Yes. So how did the time go? So you got 14 on the first day. Yes, I did. How did it proceed through the rest of the month? So I think by the midpoint when we went to Norway, I'd got 100 by that point. And then I there was sort of trickling in. And then I got 100 all in one go Wow! Um, from the person who hired me to do the writer's retreats. Ah. And once I'd got up to about sort of 220, then I was in the home straight. And I started to, you know, to know that, yeah, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. And then other people started buying and I ended up with 255 pre-orders. So it was, um, yeah, I recommend any author to do it, but I wouldn't do it again. (laughs) So (laughs) intense. (laughs) But to do it, yes, I 100%, I highly recommend it. But yes, one, do it once. Well, I think then also the advantage is that you then have a relationship with a publisher. So you now have a relationship with Mango and then you could use that connection instead of having to start from the beginning. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, I'm now a Mango author. And yeah, that's um, absolutely amazing. And yes, it's, it's just about getting on that first rung. And then when you yeah, when you're in, then you're in. And, and I think, yeah, I'm very grateful and very fortunate. So you got to the end, you got your 255, which is amazing. So then what happened then? Did they, they sent the pitch out and then you got messages? I'm interested. I mean, details. I'm so interested. Yeah, no, definitely. So how it works is that different publishers 
can go onto the actual website where your campaign is held so they can see your video and they see all the pre-orders and they see your proposal. So lots of them were pitching, saying, oh, would you like to come and publish with, with me? I had went through a period of about a month after the campaign ended of having different meetings with different publishers, lots of different Skype meetings. Um, I was offered, I think, three contracts um, and then I was personally pitched to Mango um, and they were just a league ahead. And having spoken to the editorial director there, we had um, a meeting. I think we had a couple of meetings. Just knew they were 100% who I wanted to go with. I loved everything about them. They're so fresh and they really, they're really innovative. They're the fastest growing publisher, I think it's in America was it the world? They're, they're really um, changing the industry. And they I loved everything about what they said and what they do. So I knew that they it was just a no-brainer to go with Mango at the end of it. That's so great. I think this is a lovely thing that you get to kind of have a sense of responsibility and investment in the process because you're pitching it and it's going out there and then you're gathering your people. And then you get to have this experience of publishers interviewing you and you getting to choose which one works for you. Yeah. And the, the best thing about it is that this is completely democratic because we know the publishing industry can be a little bit, it's opaque. It's really hard to break in if you're not on the inside already. And this is a way it, it so levels the playing field. If you are a good author with a good idea, <clears throat> excuse me, with a good idea and with a good, um, you, you know, with the the drive and determination to publish, you can. And that's what I really love about it. It's just such a, I think it's the way forward. And I think it's going to become a lot more mainstream, the, you know, these kind of campaigns, the crowdfunding campaigns, because it just gets people published who perhaps would be overlooked, you know, by the big publishers because they don't have the contacts or the, the inside knowledge to get published. So I think it's fantastic. I think so too. I think that... It has felt up to this point like there was a, a decision to make between self-publishing, you know, having it all in your own court and you handle the publication yourself, or you go with traditional publishing, but there has been this sense of a barrier, like, okay, you have to know somebody or you have to find an agent or you have to go through a lot of hoops that may be difficult in order to reach traditional publication. And the feeling was, okay, well, that might be too much. That might be really hard work if I haven't done it before. So I think this is wonderful that there's another way that someone who maybe would like to work with a publisher, but wants to do it in a different, a different fashion. Definitely. And also with Publishizer, there were a number of novelists on there as well. So it was not just nonfiction. And there was somebody who wrote a memoir. She was in my cohort and she got published by, I think it was HarperCollins for her memoir. So it's also, it's about finding really innovative ways yourself that you can promote your work. Because for a novelist, you have to think, well, what bonuses can I offer to get people to want to read my book. And it's just, a, I think in this day and age with social media, you have to have a marketing head on you as much as you might not like to have one. It's really essential. And I think this whole crowdfunding process gets your marketing brain working and gets you thinking of yourself as somebody who sells books as well as writes books. And I think that's, that's really important. 
I love this idea of a cohort as well. It makes it feel like you're going through like a, a little degree program, a little marketing <laughs> degree program, and that you're not alone. Because I think this is one thing that becomes really difficult in terms of publishing is that for writers, we write alone fundamentally. I mean, yes, you work with editors or you work with other people during the process, but a lot of it is spent alone with your project, whether that's fiction or nonfiction. And to take a little bit of the feeling of, oh, I'm all by myself. I have to do this all by myself away seems really positive. Yeah, it definitely is. When you have somebody or, or, no, or a group of people cheering you along, it's so powerful. And I think, yeah, I think it's so important to remember that. I know that early in my career, I did kind of do everything alone. When I went freelance as a journalist, I didn't really have many other journalism friends and stuff. And I see that it's one of the single biggest factors for success is having friends who are doing the same thing or colleagues or people around you who can cheer you on and you can cheer each other on. And it's, yeah, it's, it's lovely having that. And I don't think you can, you can't do it alone. Not everything. You need friends around you to help out. Yes. You brought up um, the idea of creating bonuses for fiction. I'm wondering if you remember any that were interesting to you that people came up with. Oh, such a good question. I was actually just now trying to remember when I once had mentioned <laughs> that. There was one, someone in my cohort who sold an amazing amount of pre-orders, like more than like 700. Wow. And I can't remember what the bonuses were, I'm afraid, but we can have a look after this conversation, maybe put them in the show notes. Yes, we can the put them in there. I mean, I can think of some, I mean, you know, authors are always doing um signed copies, you know, for fiction. But I'm wondering if there was, if we think about the object writing from the beginning, what if you gave up an object that you used to write for your fiction? Oh, that's fantastic. What a good idea. That's, yeah, I mean, as a reader of a novel, that is so powerful to have that. So, yeah. Yeah, or, or something like, oh, this is the mug. I don't know. I drank out of it. Maybe somebody doesn't want that. That's probably like <laughs> biological material. But I'm just thinking of, you know, things that were important to you during the process of of writing the book. That could be interesting. Definitely. Like the example you mentioned of going to the flea market, if there was a particular historical piece there that inspired a whole piece of work, then I think that's an amazing bonus for somebody to to get, to feel really part of the process. Because I think that's what people want. They want to feel part of your book, that they had a hand in it. So that when they do then get the book in their hands, they own a, a little bit of it. And one of the other things from this um, crowdfunding campaign is that people who invested in the campaign in a big way, so people who bought three or more copies are referenced in my acknowledgements by name and personally thanked. And I think people like that as well, that they were, it's a, it's a team effort and it's not just me doing it alone. They've helped to bring this book to life. I think that is important because I think that for authors, it, there has been this structure of, okay, I've written this book and now I'm giving it to you, the reader, and you can do with it what you like. But the thought that the reader gets to be a part of the book being created, I think it's good for both people because the writer gets to feel valued in advance, but also there are so many books I can think of that I've read that meant the world to me in my life. And being able to be a part of that coming out is, is so rewarding. Definitely, because we are coexisting, aren't we, as, as the writers and the readers, we need each other. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really 
yeah, putting the playing field level and saying that we have mutual respect for each other as writers and readers and we can't live without each other. And I think that's, yeah, that's really important. I think it also has the opportunity to change the publishing landscape in a really positive way, because up to this point, you have publishers making decisions about what they think will sell and what they think will be a popular book and what they think is is going to be important to sell. But they're just making a guess. I mean, yes, it may be an informed guess based on what the landscape has been up to this point. But there are a lot of things that have been left out of the discourse. There are many types of experience and many other, um, you know, types of people, types of experience, history, parts of history that have been ignored that haven't been written about. And if they haven't yet been written about, it's hard for a publisher to look at past, you know, examples and say, well, this will probably do well. But if you have something like this, where a potential reader says, no, yes, I really want to read about this, please publish it. That really has the the potential to change everything. Exactly. Because there are so many niches that we don't know about that are thriving and have thriving communities. And yeah, it's, it's helping to bring new voices into the, yeah, into the publishing arena, which is only a good thing. Definitely. Amazing. Well, we'll link to Publishizer and everything else in the show notes. So people interested in looking at it for themselves will be able to find it. And we'll also have links to Heart, Sass and Soul, of course, because I know you'll want to read it after listening to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Caroline. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's really been a delight, Greta. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram, where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.